This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Uh, hello and welcome to Gospel uh, to uh, Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Today, June 13th, 2021. Um, today we have Rachel Mumford with us, drawing from, she will be drawing from section 60 to 66 of the Doctrine and Covenants. I am Chris Kimball. I'm conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Other board members, Michael Austin and Rebecca Deschweinitz, are also part of our group today. We're using the webinar format on Zoom, and we're running a live stream on Facebook and recording this program, which is important notice. For viewers on Zoom in particular, there is a chat function. We'll watch the chat, and when it's time for comments or questions, we will introduce them as appropriate. We will also try to follow comments on Facebook and introduce from there as well. I want to remind everybody as we um, this year have opened a sustaining dialogue capital campaign that we are raising money. The objective is to create a fund that will support the journal and all of its resources in perpetuity, occasioned by making the journal itself, as well as all 54 years of archived issues and all of our new digital offerings entirely free for online users. We spent the past few years figuring out how to make a digital model work for dialogue. We have set a budget, made a plan, and we now ask for help, your help to sustain dialogue in perpetuity. Please contact us in any way you can, but most convenient for most people will be by the website or by email. And I will put the links in, uh, in the chat. The website is givetodialogue.com. The web the email is sustainingdialogue at dialoguejournal.com. Now for today, I'm pleased to introduce Rachel Mumford. Uh, Rachel grew up in Northern New York State on the border of New York and Canada. Her home ward was the only American ward in the Montreal, Quebec state. So her daily life was in a small rural town in upstate New York, but her life as a teenager in the church was trilingual and urban. Rachel remembers singing the Canadian anthem on the bridge to state activities, carrying refreshments in the trunk, and the American anthem on the way back. Uh, Rachel attended college at Swarthmore College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, majoring in economics, but developing an interest in religion. While working at a nonprofit urban development organization in New York City, she started Hebrew lessons and fell in love with the language. Rachel completed graduate studies at Yale Divinity School with a focus on Hebrew on the Hebrew Bible. After grad school, she moved to Washington, D.C. and worked at the Pew Research Center's program on religion and public life. While there, she helped design a global survey on Pentecostal Christianity and a survey of American Muslims. Rachel began her teaching career at the National Cathedral School 12 years ago. Early on, she taught a course about cathedral architecture and art and became a docent at the cathedral. Five years ago, Rachel was named the middle school chaplain, a lay position at the school. She works in close collaboration with the other two chaplains who are, are ordained Episcopal priests. Together, they lead weekly worship services in the cathedral and teach religious studies courses. Rachel also supports the cathedral's worship by singing as a cantor and even song services. She is a member of the Washington DC Third Ward, which she describes as a, as a beloved community of friends and where I know that she is known and loved because I have seen her there. That DC Third Ward is my second 
homeward these days, the place you'll most likely find me when I'm not in Utah, and where I first met Rachel. Um, Rachel has been blessed with two daughters, now seven and 12, and she loves being a mom. We're pleased to have her with us today, but as with every speaker and teacher, I remind you that we invite speakers and teachers for their personal insights, for their own voice. Um, Rachel speaks for herself here, and given her several affiliations, I should emphasize not for the National Cathedral, not for the Episcopal Church, not for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hmm, why does that catch me? And not for the Dialogue Foundation, but for herself. Today, our program will, will open with a new piece titled, When All Falls Silent. The text is by Charles Anthony Silvestri, and you should be able to see it on the screen as the music plays. The musical setting is by Eli Hooker Reese, is performed by the King's Sisters at the National Cathedral. I'm not sure I want to be the next sound after when all falls silent, but I will introduce Perla Antoniak, who will offer our opening prayer. Perla is a faithful member of the church living in Washington, D.C., and most important for today, Rachel's friend. Thank you. Our dear Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be gathered together to hear thoughts and inspiration and scripture about the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are so grateful that so many are open to learning these things, using them in our lives and and using them to inspire others and to change ourselves. We're so grateful for those in attendance and ask thee to cast thy spirit upon them, that they will be filled with the Holy Ghost and want to do good in this world and hope to uplift one another. We ask a special blessing on Rachel, that she will be inspired and be able to pull from all of her experience and dedication to her studies and to those she's been surrounded by here on earth and to the gospel to share those things with us and that this will be a unifying and inspiring experience. And we're just so grateful for all of our blessings and especially for thy son and say these things in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation together this morning. And if you don't have a copy of your scriptures with you in paper, old fashioned paper format or phone, um, I might invite you to get them. We'll spend some time paging around. Uh, the song we heard as the opening song was a song earlier this year in the National Cathedral as part of a, an annual sacred music festival. And as part of that festival, they commissioned new works from around the, the world, actually. And the piece that we heard was written by Eli Hooker Reese, who's an 18-year-old in Minnesota. He just graduated from high school. And as someone who works with teenagers, it's really delightful for me to see the artistry and craft and spirit of a young person um, gain that kind of um, moment. And I just love the text that... Uh, he set to music. So we might look at that poetry again at the end of our time. 
The picture behind me is from the National Cathedral, just so you know what you're looking at. This is an art installation that's currently up in the cathedral. It's called Le Coulomb, the Doves. And uh, it was installed in the middle of the pandemic. They had planned this much before um, the pandemic hit. And it came and these doves have been flying in the cathedral with no one there for months. And finally, the cathedral has just opened up and people are able to come in and see them. There are thousands of them suspended from a net that's hanging kind of in the ceiling. And they each move slightly with the air currents in the cathedral. It's quite lovely. There's a sweep of them. Um, and uh, it's a German artist who came and, and installed them. And it's an installation that will travel to other places around the world. So that's what you're looking at is a sweep of the doves, um, the spirit, so to speak, hopefully flowing um, around us um, at this time. I live on a busy urban street in downtown DC. It is the emergency route for many ambulances and fire trucks. So I'm just going to let you know in advance that if you hear sirens and all kinds of noises, just know people are being attended to. That's, that's a good thing, um, but you may hear lots of streetscape during our time together. I am going to share my screen now and pull up some slides to look at as we are together. All right. Okay, so our text for today um, is Doctrine and Covenants sections 60 through 66. And I wanted to start with just a little historical background and a brief tour of some of those sections and then um, dive in a little bit more into some of the ideas that I'd like to explore in them. So just as some historical background uh, to this particular, these sections take place in 1831. And in mid-1831, kind of summer into early fall. And in early 1831, Joseph Smith and other church members had moved from New York um, to Ohio. And in the winter of 1831, Joseph was working on his translation of the Bible, primarily in Genesis. And then in March, he switched to start working on a revision of the New Testament and was working a lot in Matthew. And that really is in the background, I think, of a lot of the language that we hear in these sections. Um, so I just bring that up to begin with right now. In June 1831, there was a conference, and they sent a delegation to Independence, Missouri, to scout out a site for Zion. Missionaries were, had already been in Missouri, so there were a group of people already there. Joseph Smith goes himself with this group, and they spend some time there. And then in August of 1831, Joseph Smith and others um, started to head back for Ohio. So on this map, we see the solid line is the journey there from um, Kirtland down to Independence. And then the dotted line is the journey back. And you'll notice it's quite different. Um, and there are a couple of sections that speak to that. Um, so that's the background of these sections. So the sections that we had start while they're in Independence and then transition into the time back in Kirtland. So here's my summary of the sections that we are looking at today. I'm a visual person. I work in iconography. That is what I love. So I tried to translate it into icons. Um, so here's what we have and here's my quick tour. So section 60, and you're welcome to kind of follow along if you want. Um, section 60, there's um, starts off with some stress about people not delivering fully on what they came to do in independence. 
and um, some language from the parable of the talents is woven in from Matthew. And then there's a focus on traveling back. How are we going to get back um, to Ohio? And in verse five, the revelation says, let there be a craft made or bought, as seemeth you good, it mattereth not unto me, and take your journey speedily for the place called St. Louis. So some folks are on a fast track um, back to Ohio. So that's Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, Oliver Cowdery, and others take their time. Um, they're supposed to take their time teaching along the way. So you have the kind of fast track group and the take your time preach group. So off they go in boats, in canoes. And in section 31, we hear out with the canoes. We're no longer using canoes. Um, there has been some real danger on the waters. And um, so the message now is that they don't need to travel on the waters. In fact, there are people on land who could use the message that they have to preach. So if you notice in this map, whereas they took water routes um, most of the way there, on the way back, they're really going on, they go on the inland routes. So boats are out. Um, what I wanted to highlight just for a second in chapter 61, besides no boats, um, and with the background in mind that they'd had a very stressful, scary experience on the water at the very end of this chapter in um, verse 36, it reads, and now verily I say unto you, and what I say unto one, I say unto all, be of good cheer, little children, for I am in your midst and I have not forsaken you. And this uh, language here quotes from Matthew um, chapter 14, verse 27, when the disciples had been on a ship in the water and they saw and they were and there was a storm and they saw um, Jesus walking on the water and they were they were fearful on the water. Um, and this is the story when Jesus invites Peter to walk on the water to him. Um, so it's interesting that this language around being of good cheer and um, having kind of peace in a stressful moment, there's literally a water echo um, in this text. Um, Jesus also uses this language at the Last Supper in the Gospel of John, be of good cheer. The other echo from Matthew here is Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Um, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them. So here in verse 36, we see this kind of collection of be of good cheer and I am in your midst, um, which kind of brings together this reassurance on the water and um, this sense of collective um, mission um, that when you are gathered together, um, I'm with you. So there are these kind of echoes coming through. All right, verse chapter 62, they're back in Kirtland by this time. Uh, oh, sorry, chapter 62, they meet folks in passing. So that's my little folks in passing. Some are on the way there, some are and um, the Revelation essentially says, those of you who are on your way to independence, rejoice while you're there. When you return, declare glad tidings on your way home. Chapter 63, they're back in Kirtland. I put a little map here because I feel like this is the kind of, how do we get stuff assembled? We've got to get Zion in order and we've got to get life in order wherever we are. So there's a focus on kind of, there's a critique um, some of the behavior of the saints and naming sins. Um, but there's also a real emphasis on how are we going to go about getting the land that we want for Zion and independence. Um, and verses 24 through 29, I thought were very interesting. I'm going to flip for there's section 63. Um, so 
I, and part of why I'm taking time to give this little mix right now is that I want to think in a few minutes about what all this collection means together. So I'm, I'm giving us kind of a little bit of a tour right now. Um, so in Doctrine and Covenant 6324, it reads, this is the will of the Lord your God concerning his saints that they should assemble themselves together unto the land of Zion, not in haste, lest there should be confusion, which bringeth pestilence. Um, and he goes on to say, the Lord says, you have to purchase the lands that you have the advantage of the world, that you may have claim on the world, that they may not be stirred up unto anger. Um, the land of Zion shall not be obtained, but by purchase or by blood. Otherwise, there is none inheritance for you. So essentially, you can't go to war over this land. You can't just take it. You have to purchase it. Um, and what we know is that despite purchasing, um, they still um, had many troubles and ultimately had uh, a lot of their land, um, had their land taken from them or had to leave without being able to um, sell it. Um, that's the forward story. So, but there's this really kind of interesting language around doing um, this work in an orderly way. Um, and it uses the language, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's. Um, so um, then there's a lot of language around who stays and who goes, who stays in Kirtland, who's gonna go to Missouri, lots of names, um, kind of who does what. Um, chapter or section 64, um, Joseph is preparing to go to Hiram in Ohio and dive back into the New Testament revision. Um, there's a really interesting section at the beginning here where it acknowledges that Joseph has been criticized and that he has sinned, um, but it says he'll be forgiven if he asks for it. And there's a real focus on forgiving one another. And in verse 11 of section 64, it says, and you ought to say in your hearts, let God judge between me and thee and reward thee according to thy deeds. Um, this language of letting God judge between me and thee shows up in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 24, when David and Saul are at war with each other, and David finds Saul and could kill him, decides not to, and instead cuts off a piece of his cloak, and then says later, hey Saul, look what I've got, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Um, and so there's this really interesting echo of people who are close, who have serious tension with one another, um, and uh, figuring out who's doing the judging here and who gets to um, enact judgment on one another. So some people are told to sell their land, others to stay in Ohio. Um, and then near the end is a, this very famous set of verses, um, verse 33, be not weary in well-doing for ye are laying the foundation of a great work. So that's the icon we got. And out of small things proceedeth that which is great. Um, and then Later on, the church is like a judge on a hill, and Zion is an ensign or a flag that is drawing in the nations, echoing the language of Isaiah. Okay, chapter, section 65 is a prayer. It's, a, it's titled differently than a number of the other sections, and we'll dive more into depth into that, but some of the language to highlight here is this idea of preparing the way of the Lord, a lot of language around the kingdom of God, and this really beautiful line, may the kingdom of God go forth, that the kingdom of heaven may come, it's kind of meeting of kingdoms. Um, and we'll talk more about 65. And then 66 is a personalized message to William McClellan, um, who needs to keep repenting, um, like many of them, and go preach in the eastern lands with Samuel Smith. And one of the 
said little uh, flickers of hope in the middle of this is in verse 11, um, when it says that uh, as missionaries, uh, they will push many people to Zion with songs of everlasting joy upon their heads. Um, echoing language from Isaiah, um, from a section about the restoration of the people of Israel. You may recall the poetry around the desert blossoming as a rose. Um, that's the same chapter where this idea of songs of joy being upon their heads comes from. Um, so here's the tour. There's a lot more in there, but I just kind of gave a mix of things that uh, are in these chapters in these sections. And for me, as I read through, one of the things that I feel caught in as a reader is this tension between theology, the interpersonal drama, and all the logistics. Um, and, you know, I actually went through and made a list of all the people who are mentioned back in section 57 who have a job to do in Missouri. And they all get jobs. And then over the sections that come, it's like sometimes they're thumbs up, sometimes they're thumbs down. It's like, watch out, you didn't have a job. Now you're back in again. You're going to get your job taken away from you if you don't watch out. So there's this kind of like ping pong going on with all these people, Sidney Gilbert, Edward Partridge, William Phelps, Oliver Cowdery, Sidney Rigdon. Um, so that's this drama going on. And, um, and you have lots of logistics. Are we going to buy it? Are we going to take it? How do we get there? Boat, no boat. And then um, theology, it's all caught up together. And um, a piece of text that I thought was really important for me and um, for this is a, I wanted to read this from Richard Bushman's book, Rough Stone Rolling. Um, Bushman says, the church published the revelations in all their diversity and complexity, making no attempt to distinguish the significant from the trivial. Brief revelations about personal callings intermingled with visions of the future and broad statements of belief and policy. Save for the revealed preface that was put first in the book, the revelations were arranged in chronological order. The result was a melange much like the Bible, unsystematic, concrete, sometimes sweeping, other times pedestrian, both effulgent and spare. Um, and I would just highlight this language about this kind of the significant and the trivial all mashed up together in these revelations. Um, so I see there are a few comments in the chat. Do you, should we pause for a minute? And if, is there anything that people would like to address before we keep going? So I think, I think we're just trying to keep up with you. So um, <laughs> uh, not, yet a, not yet a direct question. So I would continue. Okay. All right, great. Thank you. All right. So I want to take a minute with this idea in mind of this, let's go back to this, this collection of interpersonal drama, theology, and logistics um, that make up these revelations. I want to um, think for a minute about this idea, an idea of bundling um, that was introduced to me by the artist Paige Turner and some of you may know her work. Um, she delivered a, a, a workshop at an exponent retreat in 2016 that has stayed with me every year since then. And um, she talked with us about the idea of the sacredness of the bundle. This is some of her work that's featured on her website. Um, she assembles um, artifacts from all over, um, from nature, historical antiques, 
um, and creates beautiful works of art um, with the materials that she has. So this is what she gave us at our workshop, these boxes. And um, it was just such a wonderful gift to get this box. And, and then she invited us to open the boxes. And first she talked with us about the idea of a bundle and what a bundle is. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And then she told us that part of really enjoying a bundle is unbundling the bundle. And so we got to open the boxes and take them apart. And I have since put a lot of my pieces back together, but she, we did not want to take the boxes apart. They look, first of all, they look so beautiful tied up like this. And then they look so nice packaged up. It felt awful almost to kind of have to untie these beautiful ribbons. And, you know, we were worried that we would put it back as beautifully as she had put it together. And she said, no, that's part of the point is that it's going to get a little messy, but then you'll, you'll really know your bundle and um, you can't fully appreciate it until you take it apart. So here's mine in a state of somewhat being apart right here. Um, so I commend to you this video. If you search on the internet, Sacredness of the Bundle with Paige Turner, you will find this video and it's about eight minutes long and I suggest that you watch it. She has many, many visual examples of bundles and a lot of material in her thinking about it, but I wanted to highlight a few ideas. So she says that a bundle contains itself. So unlike a vessel, which um, exists, whether it has anything in it or not, a bundle only exists um, when it's brought together. It contains itself and it cannot exist unbound. And then these were four ideas that you see on the screen that she highlighted that seemed important for me in thinking about text. So she said, bundling is an essential element of abstract thinking. If we think about sorting, um, making connections, making inferences, the kinds of abstract thinking that we do, bundling is part of what we do when we do abstract thinking. Um, bundling helps us communicate beyond words and communicate complex thoughts in a concise and direct way. There's something about a very tight package that lets us communicate something quite complex. Um, and uh, she said, bundled symbols show a constructed relationship between ideas, um, which is just a really interesting thought. So with these ideas in mind, I want to turn back to the package of text in the Doctrine and Covenants and think about bundling in this case and ask the questions, how does this apply to the text that we see? And I put here the bundle that we have for today um, and ask, what do you see as sacred in the compilation of the significant and the trivial? And uh, what does this say beyond words for you? Um, and maybe as folks are thinking about that for a minute, I'll start with one idea that um, came to mind for me. So for me, when I started with the boat, no boat, and then people are on their way, and then the, this drama of is Edward Partridge doing a good job or is he not doing a good job, and all the kind of ups and downs and change that happens, it can feel um, really... Um, just this ping pong experience. And yet um, that's so true to life. And I thought about this idea of change. Um, Adrienne Marie Brown is a social activist um, and writes a lot of theory on social change. And in her book, Emergent Strategy, she quotes Octavia Butler, um, the writer um, who says, all that you touch, you change. All that you change, 
change is you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change, which is in tension with what we often think about God as kind of the solid, impermanent um, presence. So this idea that God is change as a, as a kind of foundational truth is, um, can be both difficult, but also really powerful. And then Adrian uh, Marie Brown goes on to say, if we accept the scientific and science fictional premise that change is a constant condition of this universe, then it becomes important that we learn to be in right relationship with change. Um, so I've been thinking about that kind of in the background is perhaps one of the truths that this bundle says beyond words is uh, speaking to the reality of change and the kind of enduring presence of inspiration in the middle of that, rather than this assumption that uh, static kind of life will be good is the way we, we know things are all right. Um, and that change is really at the heart of those revelations um, and perhaps um, might be more at the heart of our theology. Um, so that's one idea that came up. I'm curious if, if others have thoughts. I just at this point on um, thinking about some of these questions now that we've spent part of a year, half a year thinking about these revelations, anything that comes up in terms of this compilation of the significant and the trivial together and what that says perhaps in the bundling. Uh, uh, a couple of comments. One is, uh, here in the chat that uh, we sometimes have a conversation about whether there are sections of the Doctrine and Covenants we could just drop, whether we could do a, and a, a major edit of the Doctrine and Covenants and get rid of the, well, I guess what would be, maybe that would be the trivial here. And, and uh, you cause us to step back and think, well, is, is, that, is that the right thing to be, talking about or to be thinking about. Uh, that's uh, a comment there. The other, the other, I guess, as I look for other people to comment, uh, that occurs to me is this section, um, section 65 that you already pointed out, the verse six, uh, may the kingdom of God go forth that the kingdom of heaven may come. And one way to think about all of these is that this is a this is the work of the kingdom of, of making the kingdom of God, and which includes giving assignments and traveling and buying land. And uh, that is somewhat defining of the kingdom of God, which is, uh, um, I hadn't thought of it that way before. I guess the kingdom of God sounds like up in heaven or, or in, in an afterlife or something. But if, if this is making the kingdom of God, that's a, uh, uh, that's an interesting gloss on the on all of these verses and sections. So I wasn't at the exponent retreat, but I've been able to do a bundling workshop with Paige Turner, and it was um, an amazing and challenging experience. Right. So, uh, so you described some of the discomfort in the unbundling. And I really love thinking about that in the context of, uh, of these scriptures and of this uh, kind of compilation of the significant and the sacred. 
and uh, and I'm and I'm thinking about how that changes over time <laughs> for me, right? So what I recognize as sacred and trivial, you know, isn't constant. That I'm that I'm kind of rebundling that and reconfiguring that, and it and it has different meanings at different times. So this, um, you know, this this kind of practice of bundling and of reading and engaging with scripture you know, helps us to reconstruct relationships between ideas and, and meaning in our lives. Um, and I love to the thought of the kind of temporal and practical and logistical and theological and spiritual. And that that's really what this life spirit experience is about, <laughs> right? The, um, anyway, so so it's got me got me thinking. Um, there's a couple of comments that have come in. Um, Margaret Olson here, who was probably at that um, exponent retreat, says thinking a lot about how the Book of Mormon uh, is a similar kind of bundling with the sacred text, made up mostly of people's stories. Uh, for the most part, it's not Christ speaking; it's people uh, living their lives, and it's pretty profound that those stories are sacred. So, uh, I, I love that—the um, kind of stories, the trivial—is um, is sacred, right? Yeah. There, there's there's contrasting, uh, almost tension described here by several comments. Um, sometimes I get caught up in the logistics and lose track of the goal. Um, on the other hand, another comment, uh, I, one of the unspoken messages may be that God is most truly revealed through the trivialities of our lives. Right, I think, I just think that's such a powerful idea because that's actually, that's the life we have. Whether we like it or not, we live in this mix. And so kind of accepting that if there's any spirituality to be had, it's in this messy mix, because that's all we've got. Um, we don't have kind of a neat and tidy box in which our theology arrives in a package and stays static. You know, we, we change and life is messy and we need to go to the grocery store and we have someone crying in the other room and the horns are beeping and that's the life that we've got to live in. Um, and related to that, um, Here's another piece that I felt um, kind of spoke to this idea. So Jan Richardson is an ordained Methodist minister who has written a number of books of blessings that I find really lovely. And she talks about this idea of blessing. And I thought it connected well to the idea of um, a revelation in the messiness of life. She says, a blessing conveys God's desire for our wholeness and it holds the ability to open us to the presence of God in any circumstance. I have come to see with greater and greater clarity that a blessing is at its most potent in times of disaster, devastation, and loss. When God's providence seems most difficult to find, a blessing helps us perceive the grace that threads through our lives. A blessing does not explain away our loss or justify devastation. It does not make light of grief or provide a simple fix for the rending. It does not compel us to move on. Instead, a blessing meets us in the place of our deepest loss. In that place, it offers us a glimpse of wholeness and claims that wholeness here and now. 
And Margaret, I think about um, your comment about the Book of Mormon, and this is a book that's a tragedy. I mean, the book um, in a kind of, at least in a plot sense, ends with the loss of so many people in this extreme violence. Um, and so to find blessing in the stories and this idea that Jan Richardson has of the grace that threads through our lives seems really powerful to be willing to kind of look for that um, in the devastation um, and in, in the stories that wrap around that. So thank you for that idea. Um, yeah, I think, um, Chris, you brought up this idea of kind of someone made a comment about getting rid of the trivial. Should we just get rid of it? You know, and that's been the question with scripture since the very beginning. People have been arguing what should go in the book and what shouldn't go in the book. You know, in, the new in early Christianity, a lot of folks said, why do we have four gospels? We just need one, right? I mean, and that's not a question of like necessarily trivial or not trivial, but like, couldn't we be more efficient about this if we just had a set of creeds or if we just even had one? And the idea that um, we make multiplicity sacred um, seems really powerful, that diverse stories about the same thing or someone's messy version with another person's messy version, um, that we hold that as sacred has been part of what we have created as scripture in the New Testament, or the, you know, the Hebrew Bible is the same way. You've got a whole mix of things um, that could have gotten trimmed out, but they've stayed. Um, and and Rebecca, you bring up this idea that at different times in our life, then we, we connect the dots in different ways. And if we didn't have the whole bundle, we wouldn't connect those dots. We wouldn't have all the dots to connect in the ways that meet us in the moment we're in. Um, as much as I'd like to get rid of some, <laughs> some, of, the, some of those pieces. Um, so I think those are important ideas. And Angie, Angie DeLong mentions here that, and I think this relates to things you were doing earlier, Rachel, that Jesus often fused unrelated texts from the Hebrew Bible, which shared an unusual word into a new teaching. So even in the bringing the Hebrew Bible into the Doctrine and Covenants, into the New Testament, we have a, a, a mixing and a... And a, and a a bundling happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's this, yeah, there's this bundling of text. And then within it, it's the bundling of things we really wish we didn't have to wade through and things that just strike us as transcendent in the moment. And, um, and I think about how so much of, I don't know, just we move through our lives and there's so much going on. And if we can create a little bit of space to see what's in that package, it becomes there's there's more beauty than we thought, um, and there's kind of beauty in the trivial in in special ways. So, um, I let's let's go forward a little bit here and look then in depth at so on that idea of kind of this text coming together. Um, I wanted to look at this particular bundle um, in a little more depth. Um, so section 65, which is different from the other sections because it's presented as a prayer as opposed to um, the kind of logistical instruction or some of the other things that we've been seeing. Um, so when I read this as someone who's read through the Bible, it's just, 
it's like all these rays of, you know, this piece of scripture and this piece of scripture, it's like this amazing um, puzzle of references that are embedded here. And I'm really curious about what the bundle of those references means together when all this familiar language comes together in a new package. Um, so here's some of the bundle right here, and hopefully the color coding comes through for you on your screen. Um, but I went through and tried to look at what are some of the, I'm gonna do this for a second so I can see a little better. Move this up here. Okay. Um, tried to just map out a little bit about where are some of our pieces of the bundle coming from and what might that say to see them in combination with each other. Um, so early on, we see this prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight, um, which comes, which echoes Isaiah. Um, and, and then in Matthew, this is the language that we hear with John the Baptist as he's coming um, preparatory to um, Jesus' teaching. And so we hear this kind of idea of preparation and um, the beginning of the gospel um, with this prepare ye, prepare ye the way. Then we have the keys of the kingdom of God um, are committed unto man on the earth. Um, in Matthew um, chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus um, says that the keys of the kingdom of heaven would be given to Peter. And this is interesting here. The keys of the kingdom of God are given to man more generally, um, to, uh, whereas the Matthew references Peter. Um, and, and then we have in purple the section that um, echoes Daniel. Um, the vision that um, the king has in Daniel um, of this statue that's been built that has all these different um, parts, um, gold and silver and other metals and clay and a stone. And so there's this huge statue and a stone that is um, cut without hands um, comes and kind of crashes this and breaks down the statue and it becomes a mountain and fills the earth. Um, and so you have this language of, of kind of kingdom. And in the book of Daniel, um, Daniel is telling this vision to a king who supposedly represents the gold head that's going to get destroyed when the stone comes along, that at least the king got to be the gold head. Um, but there are all these kind of echoes of power and who's in power, whose power will stay. Um, and ultimately, this idea of kind of power filling the earth. Um, is all part of this stone coming, cutting out of the mountain. Um, if you visit DC, you'll see um, the monument to Martin Luther King Jr. Um, has um, this image of kind of a mountain. And then it's like a stone has been cut out of the mountain and King's profile is carved into that stone that's come out of the mountain. Um, so it's, it's really beautiful. That just comes to mind as I'm saying this. Um, all right, so we have lots of other language here. The supper of the lamb comes from Revelation, um, getting ready for the bridegroom, more language from Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the 10 virgins, um, they're waiting for the bridegroom um, and they have to watch because they don't know when the bridegroom will come. Um, so there's this anticipation, um, pray unto the Lord, call upon his holy name. Um, lots of this is, occurs all over in the Hebrew Bible. Calling upon his holy name often has to do with like you say that right before you launch into Thanksgiving. Um, so in the Psalms 
in Chronicles, um, David, um, David's triumphs, he's going to um, call upon his holy name and make known the deeds um, that the Lord did for the people. Make known his wonderful works among the people, again, in, um, all over in the Psalms. And in Psalm 107, um, this refrain, his wonderful works, comes as they're recounting all these different important things that the Lord has done for the people. Um, and then um, we get language coming back from Daniel, the section in red, um, Daniel 7. Um, Daniel, this is a dream that Daniel has. Instead of he's often telling other people what they saw, but in this case, he's telling what he saw. He has this dream with beasts, and then he sees one coming like the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven um, to sit with the Ancient of Days. Um, this language shows up in Matthew again. So notice that Matthew is kind of all over the place here. Um, Joseph is very actively working on the revision of Matthew. And this language is kind of um, just cascading, I think, through his revelations um, at this time. Um, and in Matthew, you hear a lot of this language of, of Jesus then speaking both at the time when he's talking about the temple being destroyed um, and the gospel being preached widely. He uses this language um, when Jesus is arrested on the Mount of Olives. Afterwards, he's being questioned by the high priest. He uses this language to talk about himself um, or to kind of quotes this as a side-handed side way of talking about himself. Um, clothed in the brightness of his glory. Um, this language comes from Psalms and from Hebrews. Um, it goes on and on. Um, <clears throat> And um, maybe I'll fast forward to the end. Um, at the very end, for thine is the honor, the power, and the glory, um, which we kind of may be familiar with from the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Um, although there it says, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here it's the honor, the power, and the glory. Um, but this is language that also occurs when David is praying. Um, when they're getting ready, he's given the plans to Solomon to build the temple, and they have this kind of rejoicing prayer, and um, they use this language there. So, again, this is a fast tour, but part of what I want to just highlight is this bundle. If we go back here, here's my little bundle. All of this is embedded in this one section that has how many verses? Six verses has all these echoes and different themes um, coming from all over scripture. And it's the language, um, this language of revelation, this language of prayer here. And, um, and I'm just curious as you, as you hear this or see this kind of what feels important in the relationships. If we go back to the idea of bundling, the relationships between ideas that are highlighted here, um, what is kind of, What's being said in the complexity of all of this coming together, um, if this is a prayer? So um, what does this say beyond words? There are a lot of words here, and they come from a lot of places. But um, Rachel, I have a comment on this. Um, mm -hmm. I love your visual of this colored scripture and how these phrases relate back to where they've been found. And I was thinking earlier about your comment about change um, and how that's related to the bundle. And it, uh, one of my sort of side hobbies is etymology and learning where words come from. And um, 
the word repent means to change and it can also mean um, a breath. So it's, it's like a change in the way you're breathing. And that's something that we all get to do throughout our life is make these daily or momentary changes in breath. They might be seasonal or, um, you know, over a decade, it, it might take for us to change how we're literally breathing in and out every day and, and doing the actions that we do every day. And I, I thought it was really interesting in thinking that of, of the bundle and how once we get our breath sort of in tune with the Lord and with each other, we can be bound together. And it made me think of, of song you know, in the temporal world, one time when a group of people will be breathing exactly the same way is in song. And we're all doing the same vowel sounds and consonants and our breath coming in and out is exactly the same. And if this, you know, section 65 with these different colors was a piece of sheet music, it's as if each color is a note and we've all heard it before, but here it is making its own song where all the notes are on one page at once. Beautiful idea, Perla. Thank you. I, I have a kind of personal reaction. I, I, I'll keep doing that, I guess, without apology. Um, as you went through this, I, it, it occurred to me that not to match myself with Joseph Smith at all, but that um, I have given a blessing in which I included, I mean, that blessing, the words, wherever they came from, included phrases like this, that you could have gone back and found all over the scriptures. And I have, have puzzled on that thinking, well, that's just a language. That's just a, a, a way we talk, a kind of, prayer language, um, but maybe it's more than that. Maybe the phrases really do tie back to the images, as you've pointed out, to the images from Daniel, from, um, you know, from Psalms. And maybe there, maybe both of the, both are happening, that this, that this is a, a language that we learn to use. Um, you know, not Joseph Smith, much more, dramatically and powerfully than I would ever do, but maybe there's a language we learn to use that really does bundle up these ideas that are that that are embedded in us by having by studying the scriptures, by paying attention. Yeah. And I think um, I love this idea of um, the prayer language. And um, where does that language come from? What do we have to work with? Um, and we, and what does that then express about the complexity that's inside of us? And as I looked at these, all these passages and thought, what's in the backdrop for all these references? It's uncertainty. It's expectation and waiting. War. Restoration and healing. Authority. Power struggles. Global drama these undulations of history, right? These are all, this is the backdrop of all these references are all those things coming together in six verses. And when we pray, we're praying out all of that, like the war that's inside of us, 
the expectation, the healing, the authority, you know, all these pieces come together. Um, and that, that our language of prayer, somehow we're trying to map that out in, in these words. Um, so that's part of what strikes me when I read this. Um, I see there's more coming in. Yeah, there's more comments. I want to invite yeah. Camille too to share her thoughts, mm -hmm. actually, since she's with us. Um, but I love this thought of prayer as bundling and and that, uh, you know, thinking about the meaning of prayer in my own life, that it's, that it really is this, what these, what these, uh, sections are doing, that it's bringing together the sacred and the, and the trivial and kind of reconfiguring them and trying to, uh, you know, make meaning and, and connection, um, in our lives with, with prayer. And, and there are also a number of comments here that, that talk about uh, the kind of messiness and the, the bundling and unbundling that went into the work of, of the restoration uh, and that things are brought together and then they're left out of the bundle and then <laughs> reconfigured in new ways. Um, and that there was a comment too about the, the role of, of agency in, in that. Yeah, I, is Camille there? I, while we're waiting, I will make one addition here. A, a really cool thought that when other people recognize the phrases, if this is parallel, if this is language we learn to use, that Joseph Smith learned to use from his intense study of the scripture, when other people recognize those phrases, that makes that builds a relationship. That makes the listener part of the part of what's happening, uh, and 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 brings us together in a in a in a new way, in a new in a new way that we are uh, collectively uh, understanding. Yes, that's one thing that I would. I don't know if you can see me or hear me. This is mm -hmm. yes, yes you're right. I was trying to express as well is that you know when I saw this rainbow coloring of section sixty five, and we're talking about the bundle of this revelation or a bundle of this prayer. Um, yeah, we can see all these references, which I, I imagine a lot of the converts and the people, you know, traveling back and forth in those canoes or not in the canoes uh, also, you know, had some of this historical references. And so this is one way to kind of show a unifying force and even some authority because he's trying to bring all of these contentions together and, you know, create some order. And I think likewise in our own, you know, congregations and prayers, a lot of times scriptures can come to us as a part of a revelation or a part of a prayer or blessing, and that that can be a unifying uh, way to look at a new situation. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Camille. Yeah. I know we're just yeah, about I'll bring in this. Yeah, I'll bring in this comment too about. Um, uh, so folks identifying sometimes general authorities bring in the language of scripture that it seems like just part of the, the kind of who they are and what they, how they think about the world. And, uh, and I'm not seeing it 
now, but um, but there was a comment too about how bringing that in can also resonate in different ways and allow people to bundle what's being said in a prayer or a talk uh, in their in their own life, right? Because that that particular scripture will resonate in a particular unique way with them. So. Yes. Yeah, I think often as someone who loves reading kind of the narrative scripture, often I think, oh, you can't just pull out a verse. You've got to read the whole thing. You've got to get the whole story. I really believe in that. And yet this has kind of forced me to think about, well, what if each one of these little tiny quotes is like a doorway and it's unlocking? It's like by the end of this chapter, I've unlocked like 12 different doorways and everything behind those doorways is flooding in. And it's still on me to know what's behind the door. But the little quotes um, kind of open me up to that wider lens behind. Um, I know we we have to go, so I just go ahead. Yes. Mm-hmm. So seeing this all laid out here like this too, mm-hmm. I'm I'm thinking about the thirteenth article of faith, and it and it comes to have a little bit new meaning for me. Uh, where you know everything good, lovely, you <laughs> have good report right, can come in and be bundled with, um, with the restoration and that, that we, we hold on to all of those good things and make them part of, uh, of, of what we recognize as, as the sacred and, and let that inform um, not just the gospel, but the church, right? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I also love uh, several comments have pointed out that it's still messy. It's um, not the kind of process where you can take, as, as I might be want to do, a line and say, well, this line equals X and the next line equals Y. Mm-hmm. Assemble all of this. It, what, what you end up with is a ton of meaning, 12 different doors, as you say, but mm-hmm. but still a big mess. I mean, it, there's still a... That's the, the kind of the image of the bundle, that there's a whole lot there and, and how the pieces relate to each other is still to be unpacked. Uh, and, I, and I think that idea of unpacking is really important because that gives us space. Like in this format, it's very dense. And I think part of the way it gets to us is if we create some space between these ideas so that we find ourselves in that space. And I think in the... Um, I know we have to close soon. I, I just wanted to share this idea from Naomi Shihab Nye, who's a poet. For me, a lot of this connects. I love poetry and it's a big part of what I do. And um, Naomi Shihab Nye in this interview with Krista Tippett talks about the idea of living in a poem. And I love the idea thinking about these revelations as living in a poem, all the messiness of life and the kind of um, the way that poetry does something different to me that connects. And she says, um, she talks about this conversation she was having with students in Japan. And she said, "What did, they said, what do you mean we're living in a poem? And she'd say, when you think, when you're in a very quiet place, when you're remembering, when you're savoring an image, when you're allowing your mind calmly to leap from one thought to another, that's a poem. That's what a poem does. So this mind leaping that we're doing as we read um, is poetry um, and is prayer. And then she says that there was a student in Japan who said, 
Here in Japan, we have a concept called yutori, and it is spaciousness. It's a kind of living with spaciousness. And she says, um, after you read a poem, just knowing you can hold it, you can be in the space of the poem and it can hold you in its space and you don't have to explain it. You don't have to paraphrase it. You just hold it and it allows you to see differently. And for me, kind of moving into this bundle that's so thick and so powerful and yet also unbundling it enough that I can find the space to live in it um, is a very important part of um, reading. We've talked about this. I'll just, I know we have to close. I'll leave us with this poem. Um, on the topic of prayer and space, I'll read this to you. Mary Oliver is a favorite poet of mine. She says, praying. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention. Then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest but the doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. I wish you blessings as you read and pray your way into these doorways of silence. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Um, we will at this time uh, end with a closing prayer. Camille Heaton is with us. Uh, Camille, is, works in international development in West Africa. She provides compassionate services in the Washington DC third ward with uh, Rachel and, and Perla here. Um, we will close with a prayer and then we um, may continue with some conversation, but for our, our a sort of organized meeting, this is, this is our closing. Our dear Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we could come together today and hear these inspiring words about uh, the gospel and the bundles that we all have. And we are grateful for our lives, for our those that support us and our family and friends. We're grateful for a faith community and for the example of Jesus Christ and his charity and kindness. We ask you to be with us. Help us as we unpack our bundles and, and help others with their bundles. Help us to uh, feel the spirit and, and know how to move forward. Please bless us with hope and faith and bless those that are struggling. Please uplift them in the ways that only you can. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts.